Welcome to the broadcast. This is Mike Lee is in context, and I'm thrilled to have a friend back on the broadcast. I think Cal has been on at least three, four, maybe five times. He's the president and founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance. We'll have information in the show notes. If you don't know about the Cornwall Alliance for Stewardship of Creation, you must take some time, even stop the podcast and go look. And also see what they're doing with their own podcast, which is really fascinating. But Cal's become a friend through a mutual friend, Ralph Weitz, who I believe was on their board at one point. Cal was an associate professor Mm -hmm. of historical theology and interdisciplinary studies on the application of a biblical worldview, theology and ethics to government, public policy, and so forth at Covenant College. He has been an elder in the Presbyterian Church of America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and on and on. We'll have links to his full vita if you want to read it, but Cal's become a good friend and a tremendous help to me personally as we navigate all things climate. So thanks for joining us again, Cal. Well, thanks very much, Michael. It's great to be back with you. Let me start with sort of a a generic opener here, because Cal, you and I deal with a lot of Christians that they're certainly never going to be at the depth you are in understanding climate. And in this case, we're going to talk about poverty and the impact of the environment and so forth. How do we help the average church and the average Christian in the pew who hears about EV and pollution and carbon, and they get a lot of snippets Hmm. of maybe misinformation and it's so far removed from their day-to-day operation. And you're over there doing tremendous work. I'm trying to just encourage people to think a little bit. So so give me the high, you know, the 30,000-foot, Cal, why do you keep trying to have these conversations? Hmm. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's a great question, Michael. Sometimes it can seem pretty frustrating. It's really difficult sometimes to get people to listen very carefully. Uh, that's largely because you know the mainstream media, the mainline educational establishment, certainly the mainline churches, and most politicians are pretty well aligned in belief in dangerous to catastrophic man-made global warming. You know, you hear President Biden call it an existential threat and use that as a reason for declaring a climate emergency so that uh, so that federal agencies are able to take steps in regulating CO2 emissions and other such things without action by Congress necessary to permit that by statute. So, yeah, it's a big battle. The amazing thing is that so many people are still pretty skeptical about this. And in fact, I think really the place of public opinion is swinging more and more towards skepticism. In part, I think that's driven by the fact that we're watching energy prices just skyrocket, you know, not only in the United States, but around the world. And they're doing that, well, a little bit because of Putin's war in Ukraine But primarily, this is because of decisions that have been made over a period of more than 20 years now to wean the world off of fossil fuels, (laughs) which is, it's kind of ironic because we've been trying for 20 years to do that. And 20 years ago, fossil fuels provided about 86% of all energy used in the world. Today, they provide about 86% 86% of all energy used in the world. So That's because when you put the government on a project, they always do pretty well. Yeah, but the problem is that so many political leaders, not just in Europe, but in the United States as well, made decisions to try to get more and more of our energy from wind and solar. 
But frankly, despite sinking literally trillions of dollars now into subsidies and tax incentives for those at a rate that runs hundreds of times higher per megawatt hour of electricity generated than for fossil fuels, nonetheless, wind and solar still make up 2 or 3% of global energy use. But the more you put them into electric grids, the more unstable those grids become. And so we find the places that use the most of wind and solar are the places with the highest costs. And the places that use the least are the places with the lowest costs. So I think bit by bit, more and more people are waking up. And certainly what's happened just in the last year has had a lot to do with that. You know, in, in Great Britain, electricity prices, our wholesale electricity prices, are multiplying by eight, nine, and 10 times what they were a year ago. On the continent of Europe, it's roughly the same. And this is forcing a whole lot of businesses, frankly, to close because they can't pay their electric bills. And so we're going to see more and more people suffering there. Anyway, I mean, how do, why do we keep doing this? Frankly, what got me into all of this is that I began to understand as I studied these issues that abundant, affordable, reliable energy is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping whole societies out of poverty. And the climate emergency mindset threatens people's access to exactly that. So it really threatens to just uh, trap them in poverty or push them back into it. Do you think our leaders, I heard, um, and I won't say it's Gavin Newsom per se, but California made the decision, obviously, to phase out all but electric cars by, was it 2030 or 35? For 2030 for California. 2030. Yeah. And then uh, recently, another one came out that they would no longer permit fossil fuels in the state. Do I remember that correctly? But you hear AOC or you hear some of these folks that are the far, far left as we aggregate them. And I don't want to be unfair to them, but I just don't understand what the motivation is. Yeah. I read an article and I was looking for it this morning and failed to find it. I believe it was in the Atlantic and it was about a family that bought a Ford F-150 Lightning and a trailer, and they were going to take this you know, long trip across country. We may have even talked about this, but the EV stations failed. They had to drop the trailer off because they couldn't get to the EV station with the truck. The truck went. That next station was not operational. What should have been, let's say, a two-day trip in a gas car was something like four and a half days of frustration. Yeah. And they were very kind to the EV discussion, but her, I think it was a female author in her, her conclusion, she made the, the, you know, it's not quite ready for prime time, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, what were you thinking when you have a grid that can't handle these things, yes. but our politicians seem inured yeah. that this is the great salvation is green, sustainable energy. And you're all going to die. <laughs> Yeah, we get <laughs> Michael, you know, that's that's one family with one Ford Lightning pickup truck, basically for a joyride, and it got messed up because of the problems of EVs. Now, right now, we are watching as a hurricane approaches Florida. As it gets closer, there are going to be evacuation orders. We're going to see millions, literally millions of people hitting the highways to get out of the path of this hurricane. And thousands of those people are going to be driving EVs. 
there are vast stretches of Florida where there are no EV charging stations. Now, these people are going to be driving in horrific traffic jams. Traffic is going to be very slow. It's hot in Florida at the end of September and humid, which means these people are going to have their air conditioners on, which means that their EVs, which under the very best of circumstances, maybe would give them 250, 300 mile range, are going to give them maybe 50, 75, 100 miles range instead. And then they're going to die. That's going to leave them stranded on highways in the middle of nowhere. What are they going to do? Walk to the nearest exit with a gas can in hand and fill it up with electricity and come back and pour it into the battery? <laughs> I mean, that's not going to happen. This is going to be you know, potentially a real disaster in the making. And it's a disaster of man's making, though the hurricane, of course, is frankly of God's making. God controls the weather. But the, the disaster in terms of the unpreparedness of so many people and the infrastructure there is potentially going to bring about quite a number of deaths that wouldn't otherwise need to occur. This is just mm -hmm. one example of the fact that we don't have the infrastructure for these. About a year and a half ago, or was it two years ago, a research team at Harvard set out to answer the question, how much land would we have to cover with wind turbines in order to replace all the electricity that we now generate in the United States from coal and natural gas with electricity generated from wind? And in rough terms, their answer was everything from the Atlantic coast to the Mississippi River. And then they asked this question, all right, <laughs> how much more land would we have to cover in order to generate enough more electricity to replace all of our internal combustion engines on our roads right now with electric motors. And their answer was, in rough terms again, everything from the Mississippi to the Pacific. People are not thinking carefully about this, or no, I, I shouldn't put it that way. Our educational system in our sciences and in engineering and the like has not equipped people to think carefully about these things. And that's completely, you know, ignoring the fact that, uh, that wind turbines and solar panels and EV batteries Pollution. and the like are built out of uh, rare earth minerals that come largely from China and parts of Latin America and Africa, where mining situations are under very poor environmental conditions where much of the labor is either, either slave labor or child labor at near-slavery wages. The, uh, the batteries and the solar panels have huge toxic waste problems that we haven't figured out yet how to solve. The wind turbine blades wear out in about 15 or 20 years, and they are already causing huge problems in terms of where do you put the doggone mm -hmm. things when they wear out? You know, they're, they're <laughs> practically the, uh, the wingspan of a 747 for one blade. Uh, this, is, this is craziness. Climate has become an emotional thing, my observation. And not unlike some of the political, mm -hmm. you know, drama we see, you and I are tasked to try to educate folks biblically. You and I have both heard politicians completely take a verse out of context to prove a point, uh, whether it was, you know, with immigration or whatever, mm -hmm. the planet. And I find it interesting 
again, you and I have had this conversation before, and you rightly kind of reprimanded me <laughs> about, you know, young people seem to be seduced by this so much more than old guys like you and me. I have a friend, yes. and two of his kids have bought into the EV nonsense, and he drives this huge gas-guzzling Raptor truck, you know. <laughs> He makes a statement when he gets in his car, and, and I'm I'm like, why do why do that? And he goes, don't even start, don't even start, because it's it's a conversation you can't have because it's emotionally. Yeah. I'm doing my part to help the environment. I'm doing my part to help yeah. the climate, and I want to say, <laughs> you want to say what part? Yeah, is exactly. That? Well, I, I wanted to say <laughs> yeah. something. I don't want to say. Uh, you know, one of the things that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that, that got us connected again here in the last couple of weeks uh, leading up to this conversation was that the Evangelical Environmental Network and the National Association of Evangelicals have, as you know, just released a new statement called Loving the Least of These about climate change and uh, the responsibility we all as Christians have to fight climate change because after all, obviously, that shows that we care about the poor. The primary author of that is a biologist, not a climate scientist, by the way, a biologist named Dorothy Burse at Calvin University. And she went so far in a CNN interview about this new document as to say, you can't say that you love Jesus and you care about others and not care about climate change. Now, even if she were right about climate change, I think that's a horrendous thing to say, because what it does is it confuses motivation with evidence, with a scientific case for something. How would she feel if I were to say, you can't say that you love Jesus and you care about the poor and not oppose the climate alarmist agenda, since that agenda is going to hurt the poor? Well, I think she'd be a little uptight, a little upset <laughs> at me for saying that, and and rightly so. Well, vice versa. Burse also, in that same interview, this is on CNN, and it's about this new document that the EEN and, and the NAE have released together. She said, and this really connects with what you just said, Michael. She said, the science is not what convinces people. Narrative, stories that they connect to, connecting their values – those are what convince people. Well, no, I'm sorry. Those may move people. Those may convert people, but they don't convince because to convince is to persuade with evidence and logic. So this document that EEN and NAE put out is loaded with stories about people who have been hurt by hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts and floods and, and changes in precipitation seasons that happen, by the way, cyclically. And all of these stories are just, you know, heartbreaking. And it's absolutely true that as Christians, we should care about these people and what happens to them. But nowhere does this document prove with any kind of evidence and logic that the things that hurt these people were driven by human-caused climate change. And indeed, the actual empirical record, which is what science is all about, you know, empirical evidence. Hopefully, The actual hopefully, empirical yeah. re record tells us there has been, <laughs> yeah, tells us there has been no increase in the frequency or the intensity 
of any kind of extreme weather events, floods, droughts, heat waves, cold snaps, hurricanes, tornadoes, even wildfires. There has been no increase in the frequency or the intensity of these over the period of allegedly man-made climate change. Therefore, it is impossible that allegedly man-made climate change caused the things that these people right. are, are suffering. And what they really need is to rise out of poverty so that they can protect themselves from these things and recover more quickly when they do occur. And that's exactly what the agenda of the climate alarmists will prevent by forbidding the people this this access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy. I want to get to uh, your fellow David LeGates article in response to this. But before I do that, your comment about story and narrative, this has been one of my you know, axes I grind. If I preach uh, 10 Sundays, I'll mention it six, that your story and your emotion and your feeling do not matter over against the fact and the truth of Scripture. And it's been fascinating, Cal, the response, because this I mean, my, yeah. and it is somewhat generational, not completely, but how I feel about something, what's true for mm-hmm. me, we've talked about the moral relativistic nonsense, how, what, what this means to me, that nomenclature has so hijacked yeah. the local church. And pastors, you know, you've been around pastors, they're not necessarily equipped in all these areas, and I don't expect them to be. I expect them to teach the Bible and shepherd the flock and make disciples. I don't expect them to be as versed in climate as you and David Legates and others, but I do expect them to teach truth. And they have turned it into a subjective, how I feel, what this means to me. And that, to me, is more pervasive. We had a guest on, uh, Brian Rosen, you may know him, Uh, great little book he published Hmm about this very issue that you can't find your truth inside. So this this is a, a subset of what I want to talk to you about, but yeah. just get your response on that because it seems most Christians have adopted this, and, and some of our unnamed preacher friends we might point to have encouraged this, I mean, my stuff, how you feel, find your passion, be true to yourself, you know, go after your vision. Uh, no, align yourself with Scripture. Align yourself with God's Word. Be in a good church that teaches yeah. you how to grow. When Paul wrote about the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, he didn't talk about the feelings in his own heart. You know, I feel Jesus. I've got the love of Jesus, love of Jesus, love of Jesus down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. No. He didn't talk about that at all. He said, you know, I, I delivered to you the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day of the, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared first to James and, and Peter, and then uh, I'm sorry, Peter speaking. and John, and then to the twelve, and after that to um, many more, and then to over 500 at one time. And last of all, he even appeared to me as one born out of due time. He didn't appeal to how people felt in their hearts. You know, if you asked Paul, how do you know Jesus lives? He wouldn't say, he lives within my heart. He would say what uh, Luke said at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs Mm. appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And you're right, pastors, I think, can't be expected to learn all the ins and outs and the details about the climate change controversy, although frankly, 
granted that it is really the 850-pound gorilla driving decisions that have enormous impact on the lives of literally billions of people around the world. I think pastors do have a responsibility to learn a fair amount about it, and that's why we at the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation put so much helpful material on this on our website. I, I think, for example, of I've done a lecture that's available on DVD called simply Climate Change in the Christian. And any pastor could get that, view it for himself, but show it to his congregation, and people would understand much better what's going on about these things. But while pastors can't learn all the details, all the ins and outs, they do need to teach their people, look, it is not a matter of, he lives within my heart. It is a matter of, he showed himself by many convincing proofs Bruce, to be alive. Good. We need to go to evidence and logic, not gut feelings, to determine what's truth. All right, so, so Cal, we're talking about this response to the NAE's article that uh, Dorothy Borse, a little booklet called Loving the Least of These, and um, you had already mentioned about emotion and story and narrative as opposed to scientific fact. So you and David Legates have done some thinking about this. You're going to have it in an upcoming series on the podcast, Created to Rain. But let's go through some of this because evangelical scientists and academics have tried to respond to this. And in recent years, there's been a lot of pushback, but there seems to be a little bit of opening where they're listening to some common sense. Yes, no, help me out here. Yeah, there's a lot in this that I think any thoughtful Christian can and should embrace, particularly in terms of prioritizing, protecting those who are particularly vulnerable to whatever might be the threats that you have in mind. In this particular conversation, we have in mind threats from climate and, and weather. Um, we should prioritize the the, the measures that will minimize the harm to these people because these people can't minimize that harm so well themselves. But Michael, let me just point out, that applies to everything, whether to crime or to business cycles or uh, any other kind of threat, uh, disease, epidemics, anything. Everything that's a threat is more of a threat to those who are poor than to those who are wealthy. Proverbs even says that uh, the rich man's wealth is his strong city. That is, you know, a, a strong city in, back in Solomon's days had a wall around it and it kept invaders out. Well, a rich man's wealth functions sort of that way. Prosperity, wealth, can give you a whole lot of protection against material threats. And so we ought to prioritize when we look at anything, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's extreme weather events, whatever, we ought to be thinking, okay, who are the people most vulnerable to this and how can we reduce their vulnerability? I think we get a good signal about that when we learn that from 1900 to the present, human mortality rates from extreme weather events have fallen by over 98%. Now, that's not because we have fewer extreme weather events. We don't. We also don't have more, by the way. It's because so many people have grown out of extreme poverty into at least reasonable 
prosperity, which means they can afford to build houses that can withstand uh, hurricane force winds. They can afford to build flood control infrastructure that prevents the, the flooding that comes with very high precipitation. They can afford air conditioning to protect them from heat waves and indoor heat to protect them from cold snaps. By the way, cold snaps kill roughly 20 times as many people per day as heat waves do, which indicates that if we're going to have some global warming, and by the way, global warming driven by greenhouse gases happens primarily toward the poles, primarily in winter and primarily at night, not toward the equator in summer and in the daytime, which means that it it raises low temperatures while leaving high temperatures basically unchanged. What this means is that we wind up with fewer cold snaps, less intense cold snaps. They last fewer days, and we don't wind up with commensurately more uh, heat waves. That means we should be seeing fewer deaths from temperature-related extremes. At any rate, what we need to be doing is to, for the sake of the least of these, as they put it in the title of this document, we need to be finding out how do whole societies rise and stay out of poverty? And at the Cornwall Alliance, we've found two things that are absolutely indispensable. One is a set of social institutions, private property rights, entrepreneurship, free trade, limited government, and the rule of law. The other is, as I mentioned before, uh, access to abundant, affordable, reliable energy. And the tragic thing is that the policies being pursued by those who are insisting that we try to mitigate or reduce global warming caused by human emissions of greenhouse gases, those policies actually reduce people's access to both the social institutions and the energy because they favor more and more government control over decisions about what sort of energy sources we use, how we uh, produce that energy, how we distribute it, uh, how we get it to people. And they also oppose our access to the most abundant, affordable, reliable energy sources that we have, namely fossil fuels. It's interesting that prior and, you know, unfortunately, we can't extricate Trump and Biden's personalities and, and sort of the emotional personas around them. But during the Trump administration, right. when you had this, the freedom, let's say, for fossil fuel development, and I think Willa Gates and I talked about this before, the natural gas is far cleaner than we ever thought. The uh, shale operations oh, yeah. are far cleaner, fracking, than we ever thought possible. And we are argued about clean coal, which is pretty difficult to do. But within natural gas, it's extraordinarily clean and efficient and abundant. I, I don't remember mm -hmm. where I read this. Correct me. Um, we can't exhaust the amount of natural gas underground. It's like almost impossible. Yeah, it, it truly is amazing. Um, for a variety of different reasons, about every couple of decades or so, you get a new estimate out from the U.S. Geological Survey about how many more years will it take for us to use up all the oil and natural gas uh, that we have discovered so far. 
And each time this happens, it turns out to be more years than the last time they made the estimate <laughs> because we have now found more than what we've used in the interim. Uh, so that's, that's rather fun. And natural gas is just amazingly clean. And, uh, you know, yes, it's difficult to do clean coal, but here's an important thing to remember when we're talking particularly about people who live in the developing world. All yes. right. My friend John Christie, who is a professor, uh, research professor in climate at the University of Alabama, award-winning scientist from NASA, was a missionary in Kenya for early part of his career, teaching physics there. And he observed the typical life of rural sub-Saharan African women. And it can be summed up like this. The average sub-Saharan African woman spends about six to eight hours a day just gathering wood and dried dung that she uses as her fuel for the fires on which she cooks her meals and in the winter, uh, insofar as there is winter there, warms her hut and for herself and her children and her husband when he's around. The World Health Organization estimates that smoke from these fires kills anywhere from three to four million people a year, mostly women and young children. That's the primitive energy system for the world. And it's the way the vast majority of the people in the world lived until a couple hundred years ago or even a hundred years ago. In the United States, the average person spends about, oh, maybe 20 minutes a day earning that portion of his income with which he pays the bills for his electricity, his natural gas, his gasoline for his vehicle. And these provide not just a little bit of cooking and a little bit of warming of the home, but all the other things that we do with energy and electricity. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Life is full of trade-offs. That average sub-Saharan African woman would be much better off environmentally in terms of the cleanness of her air, if her hut were right next to the most primitive coal-fired electric generating mm. plant the world has ever seen, and she heated her home and cooked her food with electricity, then with the smoke from her fires. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be satisfied to go out and you know build the, right. the worst coal-fired electric generating plants you've ever seen. But what it does mean is that you know coal is certainly a whole lot cleaner than wood and dry dung for providing energy for people's lives. And we have a you know a couple of billion people around the world right now who are essentially unplugged. They have no electricity. Well, think about life with no electricity. That means you can't study at night. So your kids can't get much education. All kinds of problems. Your, your hospitals can't run the vast majority of their equipment. Just getting electricity to, to people. The world is actually using more coal now than ever before. And it will continue to use more coal than ever before for probably the next few decades at least. Because the developing world, understandably, is far more committed to rising out of poverty than to fighting climate change. Well, and this is the area that politicians and those who are really pushing the green agenda, and you know, maybe that's Dorothy Boris's intent was to call out this whole concern. But these folks, and I've been to Nigeria, and it's very similar there in the villages 
uh, how they cook and what they cook over is pretty toxic and there's no upside, but it's available. And so when you talk about green and eliminating, you know, fossil fuels in America, uh, I think we've, I know we've talked about this before. It's something like 3% of the global pollution and toxicity in the environment comes from the U S you have to take into account India and China and they're not going to change. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, and and that's assuming, of course, that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. (laughs) Which you and David clearly said last time, it's the elixir Uh, of the environment, as I remember. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's the elixir of life. Um, You know, the uh, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere around us is about 420 parts per million. When you and I take in a breath, that's what we're taking in, is air that is about 420 parts per million CO2. When we exhale, what comes out is about 40,000 parts per million CO2. So it's, you know, uh, right next to 100 times. Uh, so don't as, breathe. As That's for climate change, people. CO2 stop breathing. As what we took in. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Fight climate change. Just stop breathing. <laughs> breathe uh, half as often. You know, CO2 is not toxic. <laughs> Yeah. Instead, it is, uh, you know, it's indispensable to plant growth and they, they use it for photosynthesis. And the more of it you have in the atmosphere, the better they grow and the more food there is for everything that depends on plants, which means <laughs> everything but plants. So if you're truly uh, caring about the impoverished in the world, if you really care about this, these women in Sudan or in Nigeria or in Kenya or in the bush or in any of the Uganda where there are no you know, reliable, I love your phrase, affordable, abundant, abundant, affordable, reliable energy sources. My first question is, realistically, can anything be done to help those people? That may be an unfair question, but... Absolutely. So tell me. Yeah. In all of the world prior to the Industrial Revolution, everybody lived that way. Hmm. And since the Industrial Revolution... A large percentage of humanity has grown out of living that way, and people are doing it faster and faster. You know, China, for instance, has made more progress economically in terms of providing food, clothing, shelter, and everything else that people need physically for their lives. China has made more progress on that in the last roughly 40 years than the United States made in the roughly 160 years from 1800 to 1960. Similar thing is going on in India. Uh, Economic development is more rapid everywhere in the world today than it was in what we now refer to as the Western or developed world. That's because these other places get to take advantage of, and I don't mean that in any pejorative way, these other places get to use technologies that were developed somewhere else. And all the costs of developing those technologies were born somewhere else. So, I mean, this is a wonderful thing. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, to which people always run as the authorities on climate change, right? They generate scenarios for the future about human well-being Uh, basically about economic growth through the end of this century. Those scenarios are based on various different assumptions about how much CO2 and other greenhouse gases we put into the atmosphere. And so they yield different growth curves for economies, right? In all of those scenarios, 
including those where we do absolutely nothing to try to fight climate change. In all of those scenarios, everybody in the world is much better off at the end of this century than they are today. Mm. And it's in the warmest of those scenarios where we do the least to fight global warming that the countries that are poorest today are richest at the end of this century. And so what that means is that, frankly, economic development, economic growth is far outstripping anything happening from climate change as far as reducing human uh, mortality and uh, morbidity. Uh, economic growth is, is just far more important. Uh, let me put it this way again. Um, you know, if you have income equivalent to, say, the bottom tenth of Americans, you can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest. If you're living on the equivalent of about a dollar to a dollar and a half, maybe two dollars per day, you can't thrive in the best tropical paradise. Mm. Poverty is a far greater threat to human well-being than climate ever has been or ever will be. Wow. We've been talking to Calvin Beister, Dr. Beister. He is the national spokesperson for the Cornwall Alliance. We have information in the show notes about the organization. I want you to bookmark this. I want you to spend some time looking at it. Their new podcast, Created to Rain, R-E-I-G-N, not rain precipitation from the environment, but R-E-I-G-N, to rain over, <laughs> is a great podcast. And you've got several in the queue that you're releasing in response to this with David Legates. Cal, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you coming on the podcast, your work, your commitment to this. You're helping guys like me. This isn't my wheelhouse, but I have interest in it. And I have a, a real concern that our, especially our younger generation, does not understand buying an EV is not going to solve much, if anything. And there's a lot larger scale of what we can do, whether it's poverty or helping developing nations or just common sense in our own country about how we use the energy that is available yeah. to us. That is correct. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you very, very much for having me on the program today. And let me just mention, for anybody who sees this uh, or who hears this program, if they will go to cornwallalliance.org and make a donation of literally any size, doesn't matter how small or large, of course, like it to be large. Uh, and, and in the comments field, uh, where in the online donation form, if they'll write mines, minerals, just those two words, mines, minerals, we will send them a free copy of a wonderful study on mines and minerals and energy that just obliterates the notion that wind and solar energy are going to replace fossil fuels and that electric vehicles are the solution to climate change. The physics, the engineering, everything else just says that's not possible. So just go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the donate button, and as you fill out the donation form, put mines, minerals in the comments field. We'll send you a free copy of this study. And we'll include that on the show notes as well because we know it's hard if you're listening to this while you're driving or working out to remember all those details. It'll be in the notes. God bless you, Cal. Until next time, we'll see you then. God bless you, Michael. Take care. 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.